Okay, hi. Good uh, good afternoon. Well, it is here in London anyway. Uh, to our to our listeners to the podcast. Now, I'm I can't quite believe I'm about to say this, but uh, we've managed to ha- uh, to snare some incredibly uh, amazing speakers today. Uh, we have no less than Dr. Pat McGreevy and Troy Fry, um, who today are going to be talking about their significant piece of work, uh, Essential for Living. Uh, which, for those of you in the know, uh, has been something that is used more and more extensively across the UK, but as it turns out, worldwide, uh, and is an amazing piece of um, decision-making tool. It really kind of maps out functional and developmental curricula. Um, it really kind of has a it, it's a it's a protocol with the conscience, I think, and that's probably the best way of looking at it for me, anyway. Um, so without any sort of further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our special guest today, uh, Dr. Pat McGreevy and, and Troy Fry. So uh, maybe if I hand over to Dr. McGreevy first. How, how, hello, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Oh, uh, hello. Uh, it's very, very nice to be here today and uh, nice to be speaking with an audience from the UK. It's been a little while since I've been there and uh, there's uh, lots of people that I've gotten to know over there and uh, and I miss them all. Yeah, and and Dr. Pat, you've been around for in the field for you know, for a long time. Like, can you give us a sort of bit of an insight into kind of you know your experience, how you landed where you are now? I mean, it's a it's a stellar career, really. Well, I started out as a as a school teacher, as a public school teacher, which I was of kids with moderate to severe impairments. Now, this goes back further than when autism was really much of a phenomenon. When I started teaching in the late 1960s very little was known about autism and there were very few kids that apparently had it. And, um, and I remember in 1969, I met my very first kid with autism and he was an echolalic cute little fellow that was a lot of fun, mm. but it was very hard to get past the echolalia in those days because we didn't know the proper kinds of procedures. But anyway, I was a teacher for a number of years and then, uh, uh, mostly and almost, well, almost exclusively, with kids with moderate to severe impairments and, and some with multiple impairments. And uh, then eventually I went back to graduate school. Uh, I was lucky enough to study with Ogden Lindsley. Um, and then uh, over the period of a number of years, I had several different university positions uh, and then um, just became a full-time private practitioner and have been for years and years. and and with the same population that I started as a teacher with kids with moderate to severe impairments. And right. now what happens is in this era, many of those kids also are described as having autism. Right. And, and, uh, and, and our specialty all along has been kids with uh, limited repertoires and or severe problem behavior. And um, so Right. So you've almost you've seen the landscape change. So the children the that you may have had autism when you were first starting out, nobody knew because the diagnosis wasn't there, I guess, or wasn't as prevalent. I mean, so how, yeah. So so how did how did how did you meet Troy? Troy, tell tell us about yourself and how you and Pat started working together. Well, it's um, you know I, we have similar histories. Um, uh, my background was in special education uh, and math um, and kind of stumbled, fortunately, uh, at the time into Dr. Ray Miltenberger, um, who 
who uh, growing up in Western North Dakota, and the central part of the of our country, it was um, not a lot happening. The movie Fargo comes out. People think about Fargo in the movie section. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but but ran into Ray there, and he kind of guided me on the path with working with adults with disability. Um, and that path took me to Southern Illinois, working with Dr. Kuvo and uh, a lot of the research they were doing um, at Southern Illinois. Uh, Richard Fox, Nate Azra, and folks like that were uh, just were part of the program. Recently, had left the program, and but the focus was really adults. Got into schools a little bit again as Patrick had narrated a timeline, less less with kids, less with autism. It wasn't the discussion as, off, as frequently, whether that was the diagnosis or what we were working with, um, you know. And then uh, from there went on to Kansas, uh, was in a PhD program for about five years and had the good fortune of having folks like Don Bear and Mont Wolf and, and those kind of folks as part of uh, part of my guide, um, but from Kansas ended up in Memphis, Tennessee on oh. a project uh, <laughs> at a state hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which is where I met Patrick. Okay. I always tell people we, we, we were working there. We weren't residents of the facility, although that's questioned from time to time. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we snuck out together. I mean, it took a while, but we did make it out. Um, yeah. Made it out in a in a seventies VW, you know, uh, that Patrick had from his college days, um, and uh, hitchhiked most of the way <laughs> to Florida. But uh, it was an opportunity. The state of Tennessee and and some of their facilities had uh, were in the middle of um, trying to get out from underneath um, years of of um, unsafe practices and were part of the legal system. And they had brought in a team of experts. Patrick was one of the senior directors of the supervising a group of team. Brian Iwata had a group of folks out that way, trying to get individuals to, uh, and those working with folks in those set residential settings to be safe, to be effective, to do things that were more evidence-based and, 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 uh, ethical and, and, uh, and uh, guiding practice from there, there was, I don't know, Patrick, I would guess maybe 300 individuals of all sorts of disability, folks that probably were in the process of getting to the community but struggled because of difficulty. And that takes us back to about, Patrick and I met in Memphis, about 1997. 1997, Patrick, somewhere in there, so going, on about, going on about 23 years. Of history oh, yeah, that, that's just, <laughs> it gets scary when you think of it like that doesn't it gosh yeah. like just in terms of time flying but interesting though the kind of the work that you and i've done a little bit in it's reminding me of the work we've been doing in paris actually like the this idea of gosh like well, how do we reform a system or contribute to that reformation so is is that where the seeds of efl started for you guys when you were in in that era in that realm in that part of the country i think patrick tells the story better than i do so i'll let him maybe pick up on it but i think the idea was from there we had gotten into verbal behavior okay uh, and aspects of that and 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 patrick was doing some work uh with dr carbone and on um getting verbal behavior into uh into that into the the autism community um, right. and, and working through working through um, their work, combination of Dr. Sundberg's work and the VV map and the ABLES before that, along that path, 
it became clear that um, there was a good number of individuals who who that uh, the developmental sequence wasn't wasn't effective, wasn't working. It wasn't resulting in a more effective life for the learner or the family or the mm -hmm. community who was serving um, required to support those individuals. And so that's where we probably six or seven years into doing that type of work um, was almost a reset to uh, make sure that we were really teaching the things that were required and mattered and the nice to have skills mm. that were sometimes prominent um, were just not resulting in the change of, of significance. Um, Patrick, you might, is that about right relative to the evolution? Yeah, so absolutely it is. Uh, the only thing I'd add is that, that um, we, um, people had what, 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 we, what we were all discovering is that many of these kids that now were described as having autism may have been or, or may may in fact be similar to many of the kids that you and I worked with for years and years before autism was a reasonably common diagnosis. And they they, they shared many of the same kinds of uh, or concerns, uh, deficits, uh, struggles, barriers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, it, it became obvious to us that that teaching these children many of these children as if they could catch up to their peers and enter an academic environment just wasn't any longer a reasonable expectation sure. and since and since things like the vb map were got, were essentially intended for that then what we needed is a way to teach language, verbal behavior, and other skills in a way that was more pragmatic and more functional and, and helped a person achieve a greater quality of life. And that the context in which you taught something sometimes even defined the skill. Mm. I give you an example. A lot of kids are taught to count in the beginning by simply count to five, one, two, three, four, five. Mm. And there's no objects to count. They're just taught to what some people would call rotely count. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And then you said, okay, are there, is that a functional skill by itself? And what we found is with many of these kids, they could count to five if you taught them how to do it. But if you asked them to give you three spoons, they couldn't do it. Sure. They couldn't count and manipulate objects even within the range of one to five items. Mm. And so rotely counting didn't generalize to counting objects and dealing with objects when someone else asked you to give them a certain amount. It didn't generalize. Mm. It was if it was a completely, the, the context was so different that it the generalization didn't occur and if you wanted, if you were trying to decide, well, do I do I teach them to count by rote or do I teach them to count with items from the beginning and skip the rote part? With many of our kids, we skipped the rote part and went right into counting objects. Yeah. Started so you, right with the context that was useful. So you make it real in that sense, like a, a functional skill. And it, it's kind of semantic sense, actually, as well as its kind of application. 
Yeah. So of course that as a concept is is I don't know like it, I, I suspect you you encounter this a lot in your work both of you when you kind of you say things to people and you can't really believe you're having to say them you just think really this must be obvious right like how am I having to why are you paying me to tell you that <laughs> that kind of idea but nonetheless mm-hmm. it's true that curricula are usually frameworks wherever wherever you are in the world. And then it's really about the skill of the teacher to bring it to life. And otherwise you wouldn't need, you know, to be concentrating on the pedagogy of things. You know, people would just, yeah, read this book and you'll be fine. Or listen to me say, count to five and you'll be cool. How did you take, you know, right back at the beginning, the the seeds of the conversations and the ethos and the principles that we've discussed many times uh, as a field, at least lately anyway, um, and start to manifest that into EFL? I, you know, I think, um, you know, again, I, I think sometimes when we were looking at individuals, uh, I mean, making progress, but not relative progress or maybe not meaningful progress. And and I think the, the default tended to be more hours or just this aspect of, of the stimulus arrangement or the prompting sequence or the reinforcement sequence. It, it was a, 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 a and it needs to be a constant review of the independent variable, the instruction itself, right? The number of hours, the 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 number of opportunities, the correct opportunities relative to acquisition. But I think we were starting to learn more and more about, um, you know, what tendencies were absent in some of the individuals who were struggling to acquire some of the more complex, abstract. Um, concepts and and where does that break down we'll talk about this i'm guessing as we go through this trying to really look at response response to intervention also look at what research is telling us about what kids who are getting to those behavioral cusps and those tendencies at about 24 months 24 months and 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 why are some of the kids not are they barriers are they um can you work around them right can you can, can you can you create you know, compensatory ways to manage them, or or can't you? And so, trying to get at aspects of of what does what does response to intervention look like? What does what does research tell us about the repertoires that are are common in individuals who are uh, making significant progress? And trying to tease that out so that you know we are getting to things efficiently. The economics of our instruction based on the science and practice. The other piece. Um, you know, meanwhile, we weren't focusing on the skills that were going to keep them out of life, um, the adaptive skills that, you know, we related to the essential aid in our case. If you look at Dr. Hanley's work, what he calls, you know, some of those basic repertoires related to navigating um, what we know is a complex, confusing, <laughs> challenging life and armoring our kids with the repertoires required to to be successful. And, you know, the academic emphasis and tendencies um, in programs or in funding or in parent direction weren't getting us there. And we continued to see this 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 group of people that at, at 9, 10, 11, still in intensive treatment and still not making significant progress. And it wasn't about more hours, more time, more modification. Needed to change a course, needed to change a path. And we need to get about the business of making sure that our kids have the repertoires that we know are required the adaptive repertoires that are that are required 
to, to even though you know a parent isn't necessarily trying to make short-term decisions, but sometimes they work. Mm. And I think you know it was on us to say, listen, one of the benefits I think Patrick and I bring to this um, is we've worked the lifespan, right? We've seen the very young to the to the to the more senior crowd in every setting possible. And we know what those resources are, Andrew, like you talked about our work in Paris and outside of Paris. You, you know the systems. You know where kids go. You know what's available. You mm-hmm. know if we don't get certain tendencies to fluency under natural or intermittent schedules of reinforcement, those skills will not survive. They won't be selected out, and they won't occur. And then all those things that require very intense instructional control and stimulus control and other forms of management from reinforcement, they don't exist outside of intensive programs. And we had to look at that, which took us to fluency, which took us to some other cases. But um, that was really the that was really, I think, the takeaway for us is going going place after place and in, in, in program after program. Learners just not an effective method of speaking, mm. not. A, effective method of, of getting getting them getting them the ability to control life to make their life better which which has become not only a, a, a priority number one for us because of the dignity of a learner mm-hmm. what do you have to say and improve your life but that's been the basis of how we build most of our behavioral supports around you know mm-hmm. that idea that listen I'll do things for you you do things for me but that that mm-hmm. relationship is built through 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 the idea that you give the learner control and then we start to systematically manage that around the skills that are required required not nice to have but are required and that requires a bit of forward thinking and a bit of backing up and saying what is their context what is their future um, so when when you were first starting out with EFL I can only imagine you you like yeah no yeah let's go let's go and you're like where do you start because actually actioning that and creating what you've created if you look at an EFL and you kind of break it into its sections at least conceptually for me you're looking at the as you say like the nice to have good to have um essential uh you know must-have requirements but then you've also got in there the uh, adaptive communication systems and ways to select those out in terms of the most likely the best place to start for a learner um, and you do get a sense of what is possible in the environment in which they're going to operate in. So how did you go about kind of whittling down? Let's just say, how did you create Essential Eight? Well, what we did in the beginning is that we we had lengthy, lengthy conversations. We weren't in the same physical location at the time. We didn't live near one another. And, and we had long, long phone conversations. And we started talking about things that, began to shape where we started, like, what are our kids having difficulty with? Mm. And okay, the kids that are that are not progressing, moving through a developmental curriculum like a VB map, where's the problem? Well, they 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 didn't some of them didn't match very well. Now sometimes they would match identical objects or identical pictures. But but what, what many people call the arbitrary matching, could you match an object to a picture? Could you match text to an object, text to a picture? That they had a lot of difficulty with that. Mm-hmm. Many of our kids had enormous difficulty imitating. 
they would have to sometimes be in a particular area. So if you, you know, like like if you were trying to teach a person to imitate something and they were facing you, essentially they have to learn to do it backwards, you know, and, and sort of. And, and so the imitation for many of the kids was easy. Many of the kids it was very difficult. Mm. Some of the kids were nonverbal, didn't have didn't have a way to function as a speaker that would allow them to pursue pre-academic skills. You know, you can't read with pictures. You can't get to to higher level pre-academic and academic skills with pictures or even a small number of signs. You can't do it. There just isn't a way to get there. And then we looked at other things like abstract concepts. They'd have very trouble with very simple abstract concepts. Like, what does zero mean? Trying hmm. to explain to somebody who asks you what zero is, you, you find is a very difficult thing. <laughs> kids, that didn't, <laughs> kids that didn't know the difference between before and after. Kids that could sing the days of the week song, but didn't really know the difference between Tuesday and Friday. And, right. and, and how you would react to it. Kids that had trouble with what behavior analysts call conditional discriminations. Like they could point to socks. You could teach them to point to socks if they were on the table. But now the task of go get the socks was a monumental a task for them. It was mm. enormously difficult. And so then when we, we looked at all these sort of categories, these fundamental things that in the beginning for many kids with autism are looked upon as delays. But later, after intensive intervention, for some of these kids, these things that looked like delays in the beginning look like barriers now. Look like things, oh my God, how do we get around these? Yeah. From those categories of things emerged the essential eight skills. Gosh, what a journey. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? I suppose just trying to think of just listening to you speak there and considering task analyses of some of the things you mentioned and even some of the more basic things you mentioned and i'm not even talking about abstract now i'm talking about get the socks which is a concrete thing to do if you don't have the repertoire to be able to build that or to infer the meaning and actually to a certain extent it probably starts stepping in uh, tipping into kind of stimulus equivalence in a way or even, um, some aspects of uh I mean, maybe I'm going a bit too much of a stretch here, but sometimes relational frame in, in regards to, okay, I've given you a, a verbal SD. I now need you to go and kind of expand into your problem solving skills and, and figure some stuff out that I'm not helping you with. That as a task analysis on its own is an incredible uh, feat. Well, since you brought that up, it's, 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 you either look to stimulus equivalence or relational frame for strategies, tactics, or or the alternative is, if I'm if I have to go across a room to get a box of cereal, breakfast cereal, okay. Mm -hmm. What do I have to? In someone, it's on the table, and I say, "Where are the box of? Where's the box of cornflakes or something? Okay, or flakes or whatever there's Wheaties, and and I, and the person can point to it. That that that, that that's that. That is difficult for some kids, but others not so difficult at all. But now, if I say go get the, the the cereal, and it's across the room somewhere, and you can't see it, now what do you have to do to do that? 
Oh, it could involve stimulus equivalence. It could involve a relational frame, yes. But, but an alternate explanation is, if I'm going across a room, like all of us could relate to this, let's say you leave one room and you go into your office and you get to your office and you say to yourself, geez, why did I come here? <laughs> what the heck did I come here for? I can't remember now. More frequently, more frequently. Yeah. I can't remember now. See, for my if a guy of my age, this happens quite regularly, like eight, 10 times a day. So what I have to, what I've had to learn to do is something that I can do, which many of our kids have enormous difficulty with. I can say, I'm going to go into my office. I can say to myself, I don't need any audience other than myself. I can say stapler, stapler, stapler on my way to the office. I can either say it out loud or I can say it to myself. And when I get there, I'll remember exactly what I came about because I not only can mediate it on the way, but I know how I know oh, what a stapler is. And when I see a stapler, I know what to call it. Mm. You see, yeah. I can I can do that. Now, many of our kids can't respond easily to their own verbal behavior as a listener. And that prevents that the acquisition of that skill for many kids. Well, and that to to that point and and and, and to that's the stuff I was kind of alluding to a bit when it comes to that science piece of what, what where is that breakdown, that ability to to essentially talk to oneself to mediate both speaker and listener behavior when you see some of our kids and you give them an, an, an instruction that maybe requires them to make a single or, you know, a multiple discrimination. And it breaks down very quickly. I mean, it's almost as if you're looking at and you say, could you get me the shoes for soccer, your soccer shoes, uh, you know, um, and, 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 and you look you're looking at them. This isn't behavioral. If, but there's there's not like you're going for a minute. I say that to you and you're like, oh, where did I put soccer? You, there's things that you're probably saying to yourself. And we got kids going like this or doing some other stereotypy that it would be very, very difficult for them to to do that. And so can you can you create a different way to to compensate for that? And we've done that through pictures, through texts, ways to mediate that listener behavior as, uh, you know, is that, you know, what is that? To be debated, I think, but what it accomplishes for a learner who has some of those other tendencies, they can then start to, you know, behave more effectively as a listener. And and I think what we've tried to do is really say, well, looking at a learner's repertoire, because we know that there's practitioners who will think somebody has maybe 50 names or labels or tags, and they're excited about that. Mm -hmm. If there's seven or eight or nine, and you say what a typical learner would have would be in the thousands. And that's multiplying every single day without instruction. And and people have a tendency to build around or even transfer across operands off of 50 tacks that are um, not particularly useful or relevant. So you get scripted language, you get rote responding, you get a lot of that tendency to want to avoid conversation um, and um, problem behavior, not so much in the form of, of, of dangerous behavior, but certainly in the form of, I, I'd like to leave this and I'll do what I can to move on from it. And um, those were some of the other things that we were looking at. Yeah, what, what are those kids doing? And, and looking at, because some of the work that Dr. Sundberg's doing now is looking at some of that 
you know, in, in, in the stuff that the P curriculum and uh, Dr. Dixon folks are doing. Similarly, I mean, what does, if you're filling out and you go to the, the VB map route, what should it look like? You feel that if it's filling out typically or more typically, whatever that means, there's a progression that would be likely observed in the, in the chart itself as you come to those cusps, as you move across from them. As you move up and over from them, there's a bit of a sequence that would occur more commonly if you were acquiring those repertoires, um, not only in the context which it would typically be acquired, but in the sequence that it would be. If that and, makes sense. And that, yeah, absolutely. And and that and what you've just described then is is whatever country you're in, it's their national curriculum. That's their map and their framework. So, chronologically speaking you should be doing this right now and you know in the UK if you go into any kind of I don't know uh, I don't know I'll, I'll try and speak American if you go to any kind of grade two classroom uh, you'd find kids doing similar things countrywide if they're learning typically if they're mm. the operant understanding a language and so on it, it, if operants are acting with each other to create I suppose this huge stimulus equivalence idea this huge kind of relational frame or problem solving and the multiple aspects of what's selected as reinforcers or rather what SDs are in the environment that indicates to children that reinforcers are available, whether that's watching a clock for the, the lesson to end or whether that's watching, um, you know, you're getting through the worksheet and, and recognising that at the end of this worksheet you're going to be finished. But of course, we're working with a population where I suppose by the time you arrive, as a consultant in a space where you're working with a client group, you're likely to have to figure out years of history. So the ontogeny of how they've landed where they are in terms of the operant conditioning that's gone on, deliberate or otherwise, and or you're working with a, a cohort that have some really kind of splintered skills and don't really do anything. because they don't self-maintain and, and they just become an intensive piece. And uh, something you were talking about earlier, actually, was um, how uh skills that don't maintain uh and how is it that because you know i've been in the field long enough and you guys will have of course as well where you would have encountered children or learners that have these splintered skills that aren't self-maintaining you just think has anyone asked a question what is intervention for and i was i forget if it's yourself or, or Troy or Pat that said it it was like well, how is it that people aren't asking that question and is it they're trying to match with the typically developing frameworks well I think inside you know within the 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 community of kids and and support services with respect to autism I think many many people for some time I mean how autism intervention became so common and so popular was the notion from the LOVA study that some kids with the proper sorts of and duration of intervention could in fact uh, exhibit skills that would, would uh, uh, compensate for or would replace things that were barriers for them now effectively would, quote, overcome many of the aspects of autism, mm. the disabling characteristics, behaviors of autism. And that became the focus of intervention. And and to a large extent, I think that's probably still true today. 
and 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 there are some children with 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 you know high quality intervention who can in fact achieve that and and we see that but i but it, but 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 it's not 47% or, no. or 37 or 27 it's a possibility it might not even be 17 you see and but 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 that that's up for discussion and argue we we don't know but whatever that number is there's kids that with really high quality intervention just get stuck then and they and like like i said earlier things that appeared to be delays when you started after very intensive repeated instruction begin to look as if they're barriers mm. And then when you when you when you encounter that and you say, you know, I don't think the expectation of getting this youngster to year one or year two, I'll, I'll try to speak UK. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that was a beautiful moment there. We met, we met I won't be, and I won't be very good at it, I have to admit. But, <laughs> but, but the year, you know, the expectation of getting to year one or year two and doing most of the same things the other children in the classroom are doing just isn't reasonable anymore. Mm. Therefore, your instruction shouldn't be guided by what the next thing that happens developmentally. But the difference between what your repertoire is and what it could be to improve the quality of your life. Well, and I think, I think you know, this, you know, that that question, there's a lot to unpack with that question. If we really wanted to get into why people don't ask that question, um, either because of the assumption that um, or uh, Patrick mentioned um, at, at, at the beginning of treatment or, you know, it's, you know, as you know, Patrick, Patrick and I, as Patrick mentioned, too, that it's not necessarily the it doesn't it doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't seem reasonable to us. And I think, you know, it seems reasonable through the lens of a parent or of a program from time to time. It seems reasonable. And so perspective taking is very important. And I think, you know, we also are in the place in our field where we have a lot of practitioners whose whose first introduction to intervention is through a developmental sequence with young children. And it's also sequenced in a way that, you know, you're making change, but you have to really get into child development and you have to really know where this goes and how quickly it needs to go. And because I think there'll be a point where we'll have to we'll have to account for our outcomes. And mm -hmm. I think in some cases it, 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 it's it, it's not more it's different. And I think what we've encouraged people to do, as you know, in our conversations over the last six or eight years um, or more. Um, I believe we met in Minneapolis at a conference a number of years back, and uh, <laughs> yes, a bit of a hazy memory. Yes, we did. <laughs> right, yeah, generally speaking, um, but I think the idea that you know we're trying to get people from the beginning to realize, and again, it depends on who you're selecting, who's your population, who's in your pool. But if you do work across, um, you know, disability, I, I think you must know the purpose and the design and the intent of a essential for living curriculum or a developmental curriculum, a functional curriculum or a contextual curriculum versus a functional program, a developmental program, you must know that. 
you must prepare, in our opinion, families, your teams, your organizations, your communities for the path that children can take. And, and the path isn't one necessarily of failure, right? The F in functional doesn't mean the F in failure, which it, it, it feels that way for a lot of people. And I think the issue is um, it's, it, it's a point of not only when you have the conversation, but where it leads to from there. And I think the social validity stuff from Mount Wolf in the 70s, I think it was the late 70s, maybe it was early 80s, um, on social validity. I think, do we share values? Do we share mission? If we don't share mission and values, we won't share objectives. We won't share methods and we won't value outcomes. And that process, in our opinion, has to be day one. Um, that has to be day one when you take on a consumer. And to your point, you and I, have our histories, you get involved while the learners not just starting the race, right? They're, they're, they've been around the lap. They've been around the track a time or two. Mm-hmm. And it does become frustrating at some point. And there's such an art in how do you have that conversation when the, when the learner is on lap four of, uh, 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 of the circuit and progress hasn't been made, yet the defense has been evidence-based work. We're doing evidence-based work. We're doing behavior analysis and the science, and we're doing everything that yet it doesn't, it doesn't really stand up to the test of whether or not you're getting meaningful outcomes relative to relative to expense, but we also know if you don't have essential skills, problem behavior is 60% or higher, likely a part of your life. Yeah, and, and actually, you're absolutely right about how how much of an unpack that answer is, because you, you're then dealing with political systems, socioeconomic aspects, uh, what legislation exists, and actually there's something in the idea of, you know, developmental range that we kind of have to think about as well, which is, okay, Maybe that maybe the, the you know language hasn't begun at two years old, but that's that's kind of okay in the grand scheme of things. If you think, well, actually, no, there are plenty of kids in the world whose language develops late, and it's fine. But and sometimes hindsight can be a, a, a horrible thing. We think, oh gosh, if only I'd started then. But for for sure, I mean, it, it, it's it's such a big question. So so that totally explains then why you have this kind of fork in the road in EFL, right? Where you're thinking, okay. We either go down uh, your functional curriculum or your developmental one. Or I always the, the vernacular is slightly different actually. So when you're going down the developmental one, you mean uh, chronological age, right? Yeah. yeah. And then functional being when you're you're addressing uh, some of the skills we've been discussing. You know, how do you put your socks and how do you stay safe in the street? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Skills that would be required for the rest of your life, as opposed to maybe for 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 kindergarten or for 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 year one right those kind of tendencies is the right and and some kids are in the middle of both of them it's not you know there it's not binary right there's kids that are aspects of their program they are following a more developmental sequence but other aspects are not and whether that's just managing um you know aspects of problem behavior tolerating essentially skills um but in, in in some cases they have more advanced language but it it stays multiply controlled and contextual and theme based, um, which we can talk about, you know, subsequently to to maintain not only success but motivation to engage in those conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, so okay. would it then be fair to say that within the context of EFL and how you use it as a tool? And now I'm kind of getting into maybe 
how it's evolved over time is that you know I've, I oversimplified it by saying there was a fork in the road you know obviously there is kind of maintaining variables but actually does it then go to then say that this is what intervention is for because you would have you would be developmental as possible with your functional curriculum behind you to try to kind of I guess mediate for some of the issues that somebody might be experiencing. Well, I think um, if you take it into a larger context, for some children with certain developmental disabilities, the the notion of of a developmental curriculum would probably never emerge. If you have a, a three-year-old child with Down syndrome, it 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 probably shouldn't remain part of the conversation, meaning a developmental curriculum, very long. Because you, you 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 that from that disability that disability is lifelong. You don't you don't recover from that, and, and there are many other developmental disabilities that are like that. In fact, the majority of the developmental disabilities are like that, are not something that you can overcome largely with intensive intervention. You can you can improve greatly improve the quality of your life and and your skill repertoire can greatly improve with intensive intervention. Of course it can, but it's not going to, it's not going to get you to performing skills with other non-disabled kids and, and send, and get you to college someday. It's just not. And so for some little children, the developmental curriculum, depending on what the disability is, doesn't enter the picture. If your child has Angelman's, for instance, it probably shouldn't enter the discussion, or if it's in there, it, it shouldn't last very long. You see? Now, if your child has autism and no apparent other medical or other conditions that make the condition more severe or more uh, challenging, and the only disability, that the only obvious deficits apply to language and some forms of behavior, then you would start with a developmental curriculum and see how it goes and give, give, give a child the best intervention possible. And, and then at some point for some of those kids with when the intervention is very successful, especially if they become vocal, uh, then they get right on to a pre-academic and academic curriculum. But of course, many children won't. I'll let you jump in on that, Troy. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I think those are the things we're trying to line up is when do you make those choices? And, you know, certainly the disabilities, Patrick mentioned that it makes sense from the beginning. Um, but those, you know, so so you have that issue. And, you know, the conversation hopefully now is not at 14 anymore or 12, or 10, it's at eight or it's at six. You know, you're having those conversations earlier so that you are making some adjustments. I think the biggest um, you know, I think we, I really like what you said, you know, Andrew, about this, this, and, uh, you know, this protocol or this, this curriculum with a conscious, it's really interesting. I mean, that really landed with me the minute you said it in the sense of, you know, trying to get not only what's right by the kid, right, but what's right by the family, what's right by the community. Our communities have a lot of need. We have a lot of social responsibility to support learners. And, and, and I think there's times we think that the best outcome is is with your peers. And I think it's the best outcome for parents. 
It's the best outcome for most people, just like being vocal is. It provides the most efficiency and effectiveness for everybody, but not everybody can get there. And then I think the other piece for us is make sure that we know that we know the repertoires, the work Dr. Hanley and his colleagues have done, the the the, the you know that we've you know teamed up with recently on a couple of projects. Say, listen, if you can't share what first, if you don't have an effective method that's with you, always to communicate. If you don't learn to tolerate, share, transition, wait, accept, no, not just those skills, but in groups, on intermittent schedules of reinforcement with unpredict, with unfamiliar people and unfamiliar faces and places, uh, faces and places. I mean, that's that's it. That's where you end up. That's where you go. And then we know that that these families become sheltered um, and causing a lot of, you know, underlying stress and suffering in families who just, you know, not that they, they just didn't prepare. And I think it's on us to use the science in our, in our history, in our sense of, 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 of meaningful outcomes, because as you and I've talked many times, it's not what kids do in our presence, it's what they do in our absence. And I think that we have to own that. And I think we have to, um, you know, really be sensitive to also, um, it, it, it's expensive work. There's a lot of resources going into these individuals. And and I'm, you know, getting into the behavioral economics. I just think we have to use our information, our data and our science and, and get families moving on in some cases with the decisions that will have to be made so that the learner has the best life they can and make it about the learner's quality, independence, safety, dignity, freedom from from the need for medication or restrictive resources, restricted access. That's kind of the other piece of this is, and the other side of this, did we make a life better? You know, did we make a family better? Did we make a community better? And I think in many cases, that judgment is in adaptive repertoires, not in academic repertoires for many of our learners, especially as the world's evolving techn technologically. You know, the things that some of, you know, we might be outsourced, those may not be commensurate with expectation. We just can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, you know, lose sight of that and, and, and have a future plan, a life plan. And uh, that starts, as Peter Gerhardt would say, you know, if your child isn't getting to kindergarten or first grade or year one, uh, we're all in adult services. We're all preparing kids for the rest of their life. And I think it's important. We, this isn't a limited focus. This isn't an adjusted focus. We just think it's, it's laser focus on the yeah. things that are required for the rest of your life. It's interesting. I, I, I had a, um, spent some time running a center for children who were accessing a, were integrated into a mainstream education. And these chaps, uh, some of them anyway, were able to tell you, like, I'm so confused because I don't understand this or, you know, help me understand. You know, they were, they were that kind of level, but they were still, they were young kids. They were eight, nine, ten years old. And, and you just think, they have to grow up so fast and getting into this realm of self-management because when you're 10 and having a tantrum, it's a big deal. But when you're, you know, you know, we know this story, but I remember sort of saying to my, my team is that we have to, we have to figure out how to get these young people to grow up beyond their years to be able to, to manage and handle the world around them, or at least give them strategies that you wouldn't expect a child to have to have. Um, which I guess brings me on to my next question, really, because obviously EFL has been going, I think in the email you said, Troy, it was it was over 10 years now. 
I, I think Patrick and I were talking about this from development to current application. I think it's been published, Patrick. Do we say closer to seven, eight years? Yeah, but, it'd be. But it, the it, work it, would take us fifteen years. It's been available uh, uh, for seven years, but okay. it, it took virtually seven years to write it. Okay. Yeah. So, so, the, <laughs> so the development, the development is close to fifteen years. And and I know that you've done various revisions on 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 um, editions. What's the sort of things that go through your collective minds? I mean, you've mentioned a lot of people there, so you know I know you guys are always you know talking, debating, considering what skills are important, and and then what will then go on to inform your your tool. So, what what sort of things have you just you considered and changed over time, or added to over time, so that you still have a functional kit because the danger in my head would be that you would just add 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 and add and you end up with a, a volume that's about a foot thick and people don't know how to use it so how have you kept it functional how have you made your edits you know is it all in the pre-work or is you know talk us through that well we haven't we haven't done a major edit of of the handbook itself although that will probably be coming up in a couple of years but um because it's a pretty mammoth document. But what we have done is we have added some companion manuals on our website, which people can simply download. They're free downloads. So we've added a bit there, but there are some absolute things that we have, you know, I almost sure I can tell you, and Troy and I have talked about it numerous times, that are going to end up in in an in a second edition at some point. I think that uh, it's pretty clear to us. We did not place leisure skills in the must-have category, but that will change. We 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 probably missed that one in the sense that there are kids as they get to be adults that they need leisure skills to occupy their time, and 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 uh, to uh, to give them things to enjoy, and and so they will probably play almost surely will play. A major role in in a, in a second edition. Also, we have we have teaching protocols in the handbook, but we're moving further and further away from that notion. And instead of there being step one, step two, step three, step four, and people can just follow them almost like it's a menu, it's in it's instead. And this is probably going to evolve into a teaching manual, which will which may eventually become either a companion or part of the handbook and that is things to consider as you're teaching things that you could consider adjusting as things go along if this happens if this happens these are things to keep in mind as you if you will as you are teaching things those are two obvious ones troy you want to add anything onto that yeah i i mean i i think the issue continues to be you know refinement and in, in some ways it's formatting the book i think as you the book is a bit text heavy, um, you know, and you got to be a bit of a, a nerd to, to persist. <laughs> and so I think we're looking at ways to make the document an easier flow, use different materials to support some of the content through both video and and more visual. Uh, but I think it's really a response to, to current practice, you know, a response. There's development of, um, you know, the ethics around these decisions we've been talking about and the ethics to our field and to our the people we serve, um, issues that come up around the core vocabulary versus, you know, 
you know, that, that we want to respond to. Things that come up related to, um, you know, implementation guide. How do I do this in my school? Mm. Uh, Patrick said a real emphasis now on trying to teach uh, with Dr. Leaf and other folks might call clinical judgment, that decision make, making instead of protocol following so that you come under the right control, which is follow the learner, follow follow what we know about uh, about learning instead of protocol this and protocol that. These are the decisions you have to consider. There's things in there, so it's not what to teach, when, but how, but also those those decision matrices you have to have. with. And then I think other issues related to you know, navigating the family interaction process of support so that you're not afraid of that. You prepare mm -hmm. for that. Um, you respond to that. How, you know, the ethics of, of letting folks know what your mission is, right? What your purpose is, what your goal is, why you're here, where we want to go. Um, and those kind of things that are just general guidance to the practitioner that, you know, if your learner and then introduce parts of the science that we mentioned earlier, you know, mm -hmm. if you're not able to develop some of those cusps and they, they become um, a real challenge in, in whether that's imitation or whether that's whether that's vocal behavior becoming a reinforcer, a, you know, condition reinforcer, your own verbal behavior, whether it's ability to talk to yourself mm -hmm. to, to 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 mediate speaking and listener behavior. We want to in, 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 put those in there. Because we don't want the because Patrick made such a good point. We were having a conversation. We still do with this pandemic. We're home more, and so conversations we're having now are yeah. fast and furious, and yeah. um, sometimes wine infused, and, and sometimes <laughs> not. Um, but but things like people are sometimes coming to this curriculum almost like in a marriage sense of 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 divorce, mm -hmm. like. Let's do let's get into the EFL because almost anything would be better than what we're doing now. <laughs> That's not a good strap line. It, it, no, it's not. It's not a good tagline. <laughs> we're not going to use that. We're going more with the idea of, of uh, and we'll talk about this, I think, because I think it's cool. I'll let Patrick talk about the idea of, of EFL first instead yeah. of second based on what we know and then how you can progress from there, given a response to intervention. But I, I think it's those kind of things that have come up in our field that we want to continue to get people to guide. We don't want to blame the learner. Um, we do know that we have challenges with the growth of our field. We do know that we have challenges with the with the with the with the sophistication and the massive amount of responsibility of guiding a program for somebody's life. It's a massive yeah. responsibility. Um, and and, you know, the the this unlike I mean, the degree of difficulty with our kids is high, regardless of your space. But for some of our kids, when you are really navigating the difficulty in acquisition, generalization, maintenance, and also the problem behavior, that's that's probably present based on that learning history and based on, you know, some of the kids who have the verbal behavior, as you mentioned, kind of say, I'm struggling with this. Help me make sense of this. This does not make any sense. Why are you asking me that question? You know, and those are the kind of things that we have to learn to observe and go, no, nah, that's not right. That doesn't go where we think it goes. And that's not required to do what that learner is going to need to do. And whether that's where does the naming or tact repertoire go? And when do you try to fade things to 
to pure introverbals versus contextually controlled, multiply right. controlled. That guidance so that people, you know, as they see the possibilities and they realize that your learner is very effective in that context. He gets to it differently than somebody else. But mm -hmm. if you maintain that context and that sources of control and prompt accordingly through the TAC versus the ECHOIC by example, you get a very nice repertoire and a very willing, happy, content um, learner. And there's well, so much value in that. That's right, because you end up in a something that you said to me or that you guys were saying earlier was around the age range. So from early years through to adults. So, my, you know, um, and how important it is to understand what the end of a certain road may look like if you don't intervene effectively as you go along. And actually winding that back to um, what is it? that helps me function day to day help helps one function you know cohesively in a society where you're not falling apart at every sound or every sensation or you know wh where does the escape based man drop into a, uh, to an understanding of curriculum mm -hmm. um and actually is it reprioritizing maybe 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 it's that and and actually we kind of glibly said about technology changing the field it, it really has like in terms of you know, how you maintain a schedule, how you know how to get from A to B, how you know what services are there for you. It's all now done with technology. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure how functional I am anymore without it, you know. So um, how that do might be a different, adjust? Like uh, said, that might be a different. And these problems. Anyhow, yeah, I, I in any case, yeah, absolutely. So um tell the audience now about because obviously you guys are you're not just you uk and us based um there's work you do all around the world I, there was a significant piece of um progression for you guys with uh where the efo is placed in the american system i, I seem to remember you telling me something troy about it being accepted into the school board's database or something like that is that something that happened that continues to evolve. Uh, the, the funding mechanism, insurance, third party uh, insurances uh, supporting uh, essential for living. School systems are more and more supporting it. Um, and it's aligned here. Um, I, I don't know the extensions. I don't know if, if Patrick may be able to speak to this, but certainly Andrew could relative to in our country, those the core curriculum and in, in how some of the objectives need to be tied to to, you know, typical sequencing of instruction of, of lessons as you go through. We've created uh, um, the ability to connect those through our instrument. And so people who have some some maybe prerequisites to to indicate or to pull objectives from a particular um, uh, um, format we've aligned with that um you know maybe patrick you want to speak a bit to some of the school um progress and headwinds as well well we have uh we have we have several the the, the largest school district in north america by far new york city has adopted us about four or five years ago and we've had a pretty substantial presence in that district for over oh, the past four or five years. We're we're now getting some adoptions from medium-sized and larger school districts. 
uh, one in the Washington DC metropolitan area, a very large district has adopted us. And we have, we're beginning to get more and more school districts, either a couple of classrooms at a time, or in some cases, entire departments of special education have been adopting us. We've had some residential programs, even including, and this is an important point to remember about our instrument, by the way, and that is it, it's, it, 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 it applies to, to children with disabilities way beyond autism. So you will see, you will see skills in there for children with extraordinarily severe and multiple disabilities children who are deaf and blind, children who have medically fragile conditions. You'll see that sort of thing in there as well as skills that might commonly occur or deficits that might commonly occur in children with autism. And so we have residential programs. We have programs that are part school and part residential, private programs that have adopted us. Um, we, in, in the United States, we have something called the Common Core State Standards, which in the UK is, is pretty much equivalent to what in the UK is known as the national curriculum. And, uh, and so we have linked ourselves to that. So people that feel like legally they're supposed to stay pretty close to that curriculum, uh, our skills can be considered extensions or connectors from that curriculum so that when you're supposed to be at the age of six or seven working on a particular math skill, while maybe the more typically developing children are working on adding and subtracting and all that sort of thing, our kids are working on counting, many of our kids. And those two objectives are linked so that there is, is a legal um, defense sort of for doing that uh, uh, so that it, it, it doesn't violate any federal kind of mandates related to that sort of thing. So uh it's been slow um as troy sometimes says we're still a garage band we are very much a garage band <laughs> but, but 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 we know how to play start me up <laughs> and, 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 we're, and, we're, and we're pretty good at it now we're not the stones nor nor will we probably ever be but 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 we can hum along pretty well and and you know and we're making steady progress <laughs> I, I, yeah i mean probably more like the monkeys you know i mean we're kind of at the <laughs> monkeys level right I mean, <laughs> oh, I, think, I think that's true I, mean, I think there's headwinds relative to that for the reasons we've discussed already in terms of motivation and interest from folks and i think what we've been in the process of really targeting is um, you know, not everybody, again, works with the lifespan or has history with supports across the lifespan. And um, sometimes they age in place sometimes in some programs. And so they're not accessing aspects of, of what's available and nor are families. And so I think, you know, our point is that if you're early intervention, we try to get the must-have skills. We've had success in a couple of programs throughout our country getting a refocus that the early school, the preschool, pre-kindergarten years are really about the essential eight. There's a program outside of Minneapolis um, who's created, you know, we work together to say this is what everybody's getting. This is where you begin so that at a minimum, you're not off to school in a place that you're harder to support. You'll be able to not only do things 
you know, you'll have the speaking and the listening repertoires, the leisure skills, the other doing skills and starting to build those tendencies. But you'll also be able to do those in groups and you'll be able to do them with less reinforcement and less sophistication in terms of behavioral design, behavioral support design, token stickers, etc. Trying to get those things to not be part of an individual's uh, learning history and requirements, because again, those are some of the things that just aren't very portable. Um, and I think they're um, in, in, in ways, if you craft things, you don't need arbitrary reinforcers and, and other things that you can craft it in a way that, um, you know, puts them in contact with a more naturally occurring, or in some cases, the opportunity to, in many cases, to make requests following the completion of activities. Mm. And isn't that ironic as well that the more skills you build, I mean, let's talk about typically developing children, the more skills you build in your environment, let's just take education as one, um, the more silent you're required to be. And it's crazy when you think about how much uh, work we put into getting children to kind of be more reactive to their natural SDs, to see kind of um, communication partners or people, see people as reinforcers. And yet, you, and you do a lot of work on that and then you get to school and now you've got to be quiet. So, so it's kind of this constant sense of contradiction, which I think obviously is one of the one of the headwinds, as you, you might have put it. So, um, OK, so what do you think then? I mean, where's your I mean, you talked a lot, a lot about this. You talked about, I guess, what sounds like trying to teach a bit of common sense to people. So, you know, don't be trying to follow protocols all the time, like have them inspire you. Yes, but don't like follow them to the letter because you need to make adjustments. That that seems like a focus for you guys. Is there, is there any other kind of headlines for you going forward in the next, I don't know, five years? You're thinking, OK, cool. By the end of that period, wouldn't it be great if we were able to do, you know, X? Uh, well, I start with a couple, then let Patrick join in. Now, we're in the process of, I think, one of the biggest one of the most significant contributions I think that we will make that's ahead of us is a is a teacher is a teaching guide um, and an implementer's guide and in something that's quite sophisticated in terms of not just I'm teaching a sign it looks like this all the things that go into that selection all the research relative to selection based topography based um, methods and 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 what does that look like consider all that to really build some knowledge around these very difficult decisions, but that lead them lend themselves then to the teaching piece, supporting that with video, supporting that with other, uh, because I, I think there's a lot, there's a big deficit in folks' ability to, to, to implement, to teach, and to manage, and then to support the program um, of these learners over time, and when to build in these resources of next level. What prompts do you fade? Which which do you keep? And what 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 is you know where does this go? So I think the teaching manual piece is is going to be a significant contribution, and 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 at the same time a implementer's guide. What are all the things that are required to change a culture, and to change a system, and to instill values, and to to start some of these more um, you know, relevant conversations at all levels of an organization in a in a critical way, not in a judgment way, not in a in in in, in, in a in hopefully in a in, in a in a way and in a time and in a sequence that will build um, meaningful change and 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 get folks to realize that um, you know 
as as we go, we don't know what the future will look like. And as we talk about our must-have section now has blown up, our research now on related to um, the PPEs and getting kids to wear masks, tolerate masks. We just had a conversation with a, a group up in upstate New York doing really good things, collaborating with them on how do you reintegrate those kids back? How do you keep a safe environment? And that's related to man, to hand washing, not just the form, but meaningful quality hand washing. How does that relate to maintaining your space? You know, the social distancing. How does it maintain if how did how do you manage wearing a mask or others wearing a mask? How do you tolerate not having access to somebody who is who is ill? How do you tolerate not having access to in our country working with the state of Illinois on some of those issues of of, of you can't you, know, you you can't share materials. You have to have your own materials and you can't transition the same way as we phase back into school. That's really changed a lot about what our priorities are in for some families, because it's not only must-haves while you're at school, they're must-haves to get to school. And so this ever-changing, you know, what, what are those required skills so people can access those supports? And, um, and, and so I think those... That issue of teaching, that issue of prioritization of implementation, and really getting a conversation that people are thinking about doing essential for living first, given what we know, given the types of learners, because moving from there to a faster moving, more typical curriculum uh, is, is, is much easier to accomplish than the other. And then you see the progress, not only in terms of relevancy of skill, but then when you're moving to it, it's appropriate. You're, you're in the appropriate lane based on your learner's performance. You're not, you don't have in a bowling sense, you don't have the guides up just to maintain the ball in the lane. You mm. are in the right lane. And I think that's a work that we're in progress of do it sooner, do it based on science, do it based on response to intervention and have an alternative that gets you to the meaningful, safe, dignified life that, um, Someday, that's what will parents will value. If you ever, most of my time, if I'm having a difficulty with a parent in a value conversation, I, you know, you, you go to the Pat Fryman, I think, talks about this. If I was left with your child, what would you want me to make sure? And one of the most common words Peter Gerhardt talks about this too is happiness. They, happiness is what they talk about. They don't say if he could do his algebra. You know, yeah. and it's not that it's really about happiness and what is happy. And then it doesn't sound very behavioral. But I think we've been working to try to define that um, what it what a happy life is for the learner, for the family and for those of us who are trying to support them yeah. with fewer and fewer resources and more and more restrictions on our practice. That's a huge task. Cause you, I mean, I don't know if you guys have caught the um, the thing that Rhino did with uh, on Boys Town. Yeah. With Pat Fryman. Yeah. That was, you know, talk about not being behavioral. That was quite an emotional thing to watch. Like where that comes from, which is a place of, it feels like he's coming from just like a place of love and respect from, from Pat Fryman and his practice there. Um, and yeah, how you, how, I mean, what you just described there about how, how you help people understand culture change that that's, that feels like a whole other project to me, not just an extension of BFL. Uh, I agree. I think we admire his work. We the idea of it's a new way of thinking. You know, it's a don't not blaming and shaming and really looking at the circumstances of an individual and in their learning history and come to it in a way that 
you know, hopefully again gets us to a better place and and more importantly, they're a dignified, safe. And it does come from what what sounds like. Uh, I mean, you know, if you listen to Greg Hanley talks about happy, relaxed, and engaged. He talks about things like that that are not what behavior analysts typically talk about. Compliant, able, but happy, relaxed, and engaged. What's that mean? And I think when we start talking about our waiting and our extension from, you know, uh, uh, making requests and starting to extend um, not only the, the, the tolerating but the cooperating to meaningful activities, we want, we want to make sure that what we're getting towards are skills that would matter, skills that would matter and be somewhat preferred to, and preferably preferred to the individual. These are skills aren't what we determine. They should determine that. And to Patrick's point about emphasizing that, um, and the emphasis for us now and not just getting to, we need to get our skills to fluency into naturally occurring intermittent schedules of reinforcement before we consider them met. Because um, anything less likely will not last a lifetime. Patrick? Well, um, for the audience, um, you, have, you have just listened to the face of essential for living for the future. I, I it's just that simple for me. Oh boy, I didn't think this would happen. I apologize. Uh, I think the way Troy described this was eloquent. This is where we're headed. And we we want more people to join us and to value the children and what we do and what they do and value what they do and teach them what they want and need to learn and keep it very simple and straightforward. What would they want to learn and what do they want to learn and what do they need to learn to, to, to have a good and high quality of life? Um, you know, it's like when you sit with a mom and dad sometimes and you say, what would you like your child to learn? What would you like me to teach them? And oftentimes they may say things like, uh, uh, oh, can he learn his, his numbers and his letters and his shapes and things like that. But then you say, well, what if I were to change the question? And what if I were to ask you, what would make your life better and your child's life better? Almost nobody says letters and numbers. Almost no one says that. And for our kids, that's what really it is about. What makes life better? What, you know, Troy often says that when you work with the child, did you make their life better? When you left, was it better than when you came? And I think that's, that's our, that's, that's really our larger message. And it is a culture shift. It is, uh, you know, a life that's not typical, typically developing, is is not a failure, is 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 not a life of lesser quality. It's a different life. It's a different life, but it is not in any way a lesser quality life. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I couldn't I couldn't agree more on that. I mean, that, that that's. Uh, Absolutely, where where I think the field ought to be heading, and I feel there was, I don't know if you guys attended ABAI this year online at all. For what it's worth, my feedback was not favourable. I did not like the online experience, but that's just me being inflexible. I think 
But there seemed to be, at least in headings, certainly from this, I think it was the scholarly address or certainly the incoming presidential address was around compassionate behaviour analysis. And I wonder whether as a field, like I don't know, I, I seem to remember going back to Chicago a few years ago, so not the most recent one there, whenever that was, maybe 2015, um, there's a lady coming in, she's a Brazilian behavior analyst, and she was an, in, an incoming president for the year. And she was talking about the the new, um, not third wave behavior analysis, but certainly like the people need to recognize professional practice as being as valid as the radical behaviorism, the experimental analysis, and, and ABA. And then there being like this professional feel where you can't really control all the compounding variables, and it is about quality of life. And I wondered whether. When I saw the title of Compassionate Behaviorism it, it, or Behavior Analysis or ABA, I can't remember exactly the title, but in any case, it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. But actually, this this thread of it feels like when I first learned about behavior analysis, it was all about are you a good researcher? And to a certain extent, ABA is still has that message although there are more practical streams that appear each year do you, would you guys do you guys think would i mean do you even care because the work is so profound in that way do you think the field generally is moving away from the research in so much as qualifying as a behavior analysis number what i mean by that is being viewed as one and do you think it's more now about the practical implications the the real effects you're having on people's quality of life uh, and so on <clears throat> well, I, I I would. Patrick, were you going to start? If you had some, go ahead. Well, just something brief, and I'll let you carry it on. Uh, when I was a young man and just getting into the field, it was very distinctly if you were a PhD or a PhD candidate and you were conducting research, you were a behavior analyst. Otherwise, you probably were not. And there was a definite feeling that uh, permeated many people in the field. And then I think as Florida became a place where you could get certification, that began to change a little bit. Uh, and and more people, and you know, and and I remember just deciding for myself because I was a university professor several times, and deciding, okay, um, am I going to continue this way? publish a little bit, I'll have to publish more than a little bit to keep my university job, and and then do little part-time private practice. And for me, I decided that more reinforcers for me were in the practice than in the research. And so that's the way I went. Um, but I think it's, it's become better over the years. Um, and, uh, and, that's, and that's a good thing. But what I think we have to, we have to, the, the trouble with growing so fast is that we have a lot of people with coming out with credentials that, and then they're, and then they're asked to work with very difficult individuals and they haven't been well prepared for that task. And I think that's the other issue that concerns me a lot. Go ahead, Troy. Yeah, I mean, you know, Andrew, I, I, I would like to think so. Uh, you know, I think each of us um, has the obligation to be that person, 
to lead that change. Yes. And I think it, it, it results in us being respectful, you know, within and across professional disciplines. Um, and I think it's it, it would trying to be, again, that sense of humility relative to, I, I tend to have the belief that my life is Miguel, um, a friend of mine, a colleague, I think, I don't know if you know Miguel from PCMA, but uh, Miguel Avila, a friend of mine. Uh, I've not met him, but people I've heard him talk. Yeah, yeah, Miguel Avila, just a great guy. He's doing some things um, with us and always has, but respect him as a practitioner and as a, as a friend. We talk a lot about our sense of, of things that our life is in progress, in process. We evolve in every day. We learn, you can read a book that's not behavioral and learn from it and, and apply it. And, you know, you and I have had conversations, Andrew, about the books you like and sharing some of the reads that we have and, and mm -hmm. turn it into a bit of a behavioral framework if you choose or to take it as it is and, and understand how other people, what their perspective is. And so I think, you know, it does, you know, try to be that person to, you know, lead, lead by example, lead with humility and and to be compassionate and be okay with with certain words that maybe are more conventional uh, in the community than in our in, than in our in our fields. But I think you know, going back years, and in, 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 it's like we need both. We need we need the scientists to continue to 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 guide our practice, and I think we need our practice to guide what the the scientists are doing. And I think you know that's somebody we need that. We're not better with one over the other. I think we're better together. Um, you know, maybe, you know, but I think we're better together. And I think so staying in contact with the research and and being sensitive to how you have to adjust it, given what you can influence. And you're comfortable of what knowing is. You're comfortable of what proof is. And those kind of things that, again, I, I think that, you know, some of the practical work, Dr. Hanley and other folks, it's been about that. What you may not know, if you get outcomes and you can control and manipulate and influence and build the repertoires that we know are replacement repertoires and not just replacement skill, you you navigate the world in a safer way. And so I think, um, you know, for me, I think, you know, it's you, you model it and you encourage it and um, and it's in every relation, you know, from our work in, in Paris, I mean, the intimacy with the teams we're trying to support. It's not a judgment. There, there are people putting in a lot of effort to learn this craft, and it's a craftsman. It's not a certificate. Doesn't get you to be by 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 title. You're in the trade, but your wares won't sell until you're a darn confident craftsman. And that takes supervision. That takes mentorship. That's a lifelong learning task. And unfortunately, I think we've grown so quickly that many folks don't have that experience, or they get in positions that they're not only trying to manage clinical, clin clinical responsibility of case management, but teams and the structure and OBM and the societal change and the influence of managing, managing a budget, managing the ethics of good practice and, and, and sustainable practice. I mean, there's a lot folks are tasked with that, you know, I, I think, you know, being able to cite, you know, you know terminology or reference what's required to pass the exam is not leading to effective practice for many folks. And we have to address it. Uh, Linda LeBlanc had a, had a Don Bear presentation um, during the conference that talked about that a bit. 
where we're struggling with that and where the field, though we've advanced in many ways, we've also come back in many ways from our ability to make timely, meaningful, socially significant. Um, right. Change. And talking about culture, that because I, I, I attended that lecture, actually, I was a bit frustrated by the rhetoric because I was just thinking, yeah, OK, loads of problems, not a lot of solutions. And, and actually, what I, I think is the difference between the UK and the US, because in the UK, you have to tell people they need a behavior analyst. You have to kind of go along and say, look, you need me as part of your multidisciplinary team or, you know, if you're lucky enough to be working in, a, in an ABA based school or underpinned school, they know the level of experience is required and it kind of gets eked out within the process of the interview. But I kind of get the impression from things that you've said and other colleagues is that there's just too much demand and not enough supply. And so people get lumped in jobs that sound to me I'd run a mile from that if I didn't have that experience I wouldn't want to do it but people seem to take it up yeah I think that's true the 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 supply certainly or the need is certainly outpacing the demand or the demand is outpacing the supply absolutely which is leading which is leading to people and and I think the other piece is it's become a business for some folks uh, a certification you can do the math on what that means relative to the number of folks you can serve and build a model and I think that that's certainly a reasonable thing to do as a business practice, but the ethics of maintaining, you know, get the right person in the job to support them and to maintain them and to build those cultures. There's some people in our country and I trust around the world, you know, it's certainly folks in Italy and other places that intimately France that I have some history really trying to build a culture that'll sustain. But as you know, the program we work together on in Paris, it's been a, a culture change to go from what six years, 10 years ago was essentially a, early intervention, uh, you know, uh, developmental sequence model um, in Paris to now a much different approach yeah. to, 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 to prioritization to a more functional, contextual, applied, resource-limited, sustainable model that still results in meaningful lives. Yeah, and, and actually, I totally, when you work, when you, when I spent time there, the first week I spent there, really changed the my own language because uh, Anna who runs the program over there was saying it's all about participation and that obviously chimed through EFL right that that's 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 massive for you guys given what we've just discussed for the last um hour and a half but like the um that's really informed my practice like I, I'm so happy that I ended up working there for a period of time because now I'm in places going look this kid's not participating in anything and talking about language, that's not a behavioural term. That's a, everyone recognises that as something that people need to do. Because um, the antithesis of that, of course, is exclusion. And so nobody wants that. Yeah. Okay, guys, I I, uh, I feel like we've covered so much there in, in that space of time. And, and I think um, I'm very grateful for the experience. And I'm sure the listeners will be too. Um, thank you so much for your time and effort in in kind of taking you got it could i can i make a just a brief comment before we oh, go of course yeah i'm so sorry yeah go ahead sorry for interrupting um uh if you don't mind i'd like to say just a special hi uh to a few people and they'll know who they are hello vicky and tox and steve and kate and emma and the hundreds of other people whose names I have left off that list. Uh, hi to everybody. And uh, 
uh, continue to do the uh, terrific work you're doing. And if this sounds a bit like a commercial, I apologize, but anybody in the UK who wants to get a copy of our materials, they get them at talkingautism.co.uk. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, and I, we, I, listen, I, we appreciate this opportunity. And, you know, if one presents itself again, we'd be glad to be a part of it. If at some point they want, you want to do a Q&A with folks who are interested in aspects of it, let us know. Um, we want to support uh, what you guys are trying to do. And it was important to me. I, I think, you know, a, a lot of respect, Andrew, because we've, we've, we've got on well from the beginning and our conversations have been thoughtful and, um, and have been encouraging. And so I appreciate your influence on the work I've done that we've done and uh, um, just grateful for the opportunity to, to, to talk about what we hope continues to make, you know, the world I mean, uh, the same uh, back at you. I mean, uh, the 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 work going on about the uh, that culture change one you just said. I'm just uh, that that's got under my skin. I'm just thinking, my goodness, that that is an amazing idea and a piece of work that would be if we can manifest that over time, then that would be in, in like unbelievable piece of work. Um, okay, as I said, like thank you so much for your time. I'm sure that I think. Working with you guys has certainly helped me change my perspective over time and, and what about what's important and the essence of EFL and, and how um, how functional is not, you know, the, the phrase you used earlier, the F in functional is not for fail. It's, it's around kind of participation. It's around um, finding your place in, in, in your community and not having to be shipped to the middle of nowhere because nobody knows how to deal with you or how to help you or how to help you have a good quality of life. Um, okay, guys, th thank you so much. Um, thank you. We'll end just now, and uh, hopefully, I get to catch up with you soon. Um, so, as, as everybody's got any uh, the listeners now, if they wish to um, listen to the to purchase uh, CEUs, then there'll be some key questions that will be laced through this that will be posed for you. Um, otherwise, I just hope you really enjoyed the listen of speaking to some really kind of prominent professionals in our field that are looking to shape and change things for the better for the cohorts they work with.